week I'm uh, with a good friend of mine, Walter McFarland in the USA. And Walter, just please tell me a little bit about yourself. No, well, hi, I'm Walt McFarland. And as you know, I'm interested in this in HR and learning and in a global kind of context. And I came across that interest in, in kind of two important ways. One was as a consultant, principally leading the business for Booz Allen Hamilton in the areas of learning and HR, also organizational change. And secondly, as board chair of an organization that we're both very interested in, the Association for Talent Development. Yeah, fantastic. And, and just, uh, just for everyone, Walt co-authored the, uh, the book, Choosing Change, book which I highly recommend to, to all, all people listening to this podcast. Walter, would you like to say anything more about the book before we get into things? Thanks. I think the perspective of the book, and, and not to hard sell anybody at all on it, that I think that that sets it apart and cer- certainly has been meaningful to me since is that we take a look at change from, from two perspectives, not just the organization, but also from the perspective of the individual. And my co-author, Susan Gold- Goldsworthy, is, is one of the most connected, in, in my biased opinion, um, senior management consultants and senior coaches kind of in, in the world. And she draws on her extensive experience and talks about how, um, what are some principles for changing yourself in line with your personal goals? And then we try to bridge those principles into the organization. So how do I change myself? What's a great way to do it? And how do I use that to change myself in the context of the organization? And indeed the organization itself. So it's really, that's a story that's told from two perspectives. Uh, and, and, and highly relevant. Um, it was, it's a great read. Uh, and as you say, Susan has a, a tremendous pedigree to bring and, and experience to bring to the table in it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it seems to me increasingly relevant as a, a, as a content because the future has this sort of perception now that it's actually coming at us quicker than ever before. Change is coming quicker than ever before. I'm, I'm conscious that uh, one of the World Economic Forum reports uh, noted that you know, a high percentage, something like 60% of children leaving primary school this year or at primary school this year will go into jobs that don't yet exist. Um, and, and, that, and that means people kind of over 40 are going to be doing at least two jobs that they don't yet even they can't even yet imagine. Uh, so we're going to need to be able to adapt, and change is, 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 as we said, coming very quickly. What skills do you think, Walter, people are going to need to develop to cope with that kind of sheer pace of change? Yeah, Neville, to build on your point, I was on an airplane recently with a, a headhunter firm, an executive placement firm, and we were talking about several things, and the future was the thing we talked about most. And the point they made about the future was that the metrics for their industry now are, are not about what they get in today, but it's how they lay the groundwork right now to recruit executives into jobs that haven't yet been created. Yeah. And in fact, when they talked about that, they talked about the fact that if the job has been created, given the pace of change and the pace of global economy, if the first you've heard of it is today, you're already behind, you know, shaping the industry and landing on your feet. We see that in the English language. We see words for jobs um, entering the lexicon of our language every day that no one ever heard of before. I mean, an old example would be a webmaster. 
I mean, 20 years ago, that might have been Spider-Man, right? Yeah. But today, it's, um, it's just one of many words as we begin to change. You know, I think that I was thinking the other day about change and about the roots of change and Kurt Lewin and where change came from and the original mindset that people had. And the original mindset was really about following it. It was really about trying to keep an organization aligned with its market. And when indicators were persistent about maybe the world was beginning to change, to kind of jump in there and follow it quickly and try to shape it as, as we went. As change, as the pace of change picked up more and more, competitive advantage was, was lost if you waited that long. Mm. World really became more about not following change, but meeting change head on. And rather than, than understanding the market and shifting it, and to your question, what are the change competencies? What are the ways that individuals can, can, they can participate and shape change better? And you know what? Shape in themselves the competencies they need to meet it. And I think that's where we come into to learning competencies. You know, the ability to, um, to kind of keep our portal open to understand that change isn't something that's going to go away or it's going to be here temporarily or they're going to wait for. Change is something that we're going to face every day of our lives. It's going to require us to continuously learn. It's going to require us to make new relationships. It's going to require us to think innovatively and outside the box and to look for opportunities, you know, to move in. So it's about seizing change kind of in our own development and our own perspective and in the organizations in which we work. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes huge sense. And, and, and I'm thinking, as, as you say that, that there's something around there that says, you know, there are probably new foundation skills that, that, that really children and adults are going to need to have in order to be able to cope with change, but also to make sense of the complexity of change. There's something here about complexity as well. That, 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 see, the world's becoming increasingly complex. It is. And, and with me, without beating this too hard, I really think we're on a crossroads in just that. There, was a, there used to be, when you and I were in school, you might remember there was a Scotsman who had a famous theory called the Great Man Theory. Do you remember that? And he talked about, and the idea went all the way back to maybe to the Greek tragedy, this idea of, of the tragic hero, that there are those among us who are special. They have special powers, they have special insights, they have special uh, education. And the job of the organization as it faced an uncertain future was to get the right great men. And, and I say that with a nod to ladies who may be listening in position and they would lead us. Um, the world has changed, and we see evidence upon evidence that no one mind is up to the complexity we're facing in the future. A couple of reasons. It's about the pace of change just overwhelms our brain. If you think about neuroscience, you think about the prefrontal cortex as a part of the brain that faces, that faces the environment, and it's real great in its executive competencies, but it's high energy and quick, easily overwhelmed. And any one brain is easily overwhelmed by the environment. And then you think about the fact that not only the pace, the continuous change, it's just, it's just washing over us, but we're seeing new kinds of problems 
that are so different than anything we've faced. We don't have names for them. And none of our past experience informs their solution. Mm. So these are the problems that we would call wicked problems or adaptive challenges or whatever. <clears throat> so given these new competencies facing that if I'm right and that, that one person isn't enough to deal with it, then, we, then one of the competencies that we got to start is to begin to get better at acting collectively. Yeah. At better at, at forming high performance groups and organizations beginning to trust groups to make, to make the executive decisions we've never trusted up, up until now. Beginning this re research that says a group of people facilitated in the right way can make better decisions on the most complex business issues than any executive. Yeah. That's true. And if we can learn to train and facilitate those groups, the opportunity for their job satisfaction and their job and their meaningfulness in organizations is just really pole vaults. Yeah. They'll become leaders. And it also, it also uh, really would, would add, add huge energy into the workplace itself. You know, people becoming part of the answer. Uh, because I think it's increasingly we're identifying that there is more than one valid answer. So, whereas before, an individual would make a decision and, and, and that would be it. That is the answer. Actually, there is more than one valid answer and there's real strength in combining good answers. There's incredible power. And how do you know the truth of what you just said is we've all felt it, haven't we? Yeah. Haven't we been a part of a group? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nod to our colleagues who say, man, is it hard to get a highly diverse, high-performance group formed up and built? It is. But A, I think you've got to to maintain the organization's competitive advantage. But B, the wonder of it when it happens, I use the word wonder on purpose, where you begin to get this mix of talents. And, and what we're talking about isn't just the sum total of what everybody knows and their experience, it's better than that. It's we have evidence that the group when it's high performing is able to create thinking and solutions that are beyond the sum of what they are individually. Yeah. And that's powerful in terms of how we face the future together and deal with complexity. And when it happens, there's real energy. I mean, literally, two, you know, 10 minutes before our call, I sat in the room with a couple of our team over in the other room, um, editing a piece of work. Uh, and at the same time, going through this readability index thing. And you know, when the score hit green, when it turned from orange to green, there was a buzz in the team. You know, it's, uh, it's great. <laughs> it is great. And, and think of all the benefits of that. Um, a, higher, a higher level of problem Engagement among group members, it's off the scale. It's beyond engagement, it's inspiration. Yeah. And it's, yeah. so that, that answer, that answer in coming closer together on our interpersonal skills and facilitating discussions on complex issues is a key competency that places like MIT are experimenting with in terms of facilitating larger and larger groups. But we need more practice in working together better. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, and, and that, that's super. I, I like the idea also of the fact that, you know, 
it's going to become increasingly difficult. But if we're better at it, then the transition through, uh, to that new world will improve. And, and I'm really talking here about where does, where does artificial intelligence come into this equation? How does that add value to that process we've just talked about? Where is the energy level likely to be uh, enhanced if and as AI is being incorporated? Well, that's a big question. And as you know, we recently, I, I invited uh, a chief learning or chief HR officers from um, nine global companies together to identify and work the toughest problems in human performance as a group together, all industry groups. And right out of the basket, one of the problems as we were beginning to work on a list of what are things that we need to think about and do more, it got to this idea of the integration of AI into the workplace. And I'll just tell you, it was a global uh, fortune uh, uh, financial and, and, and her, their CLO said, I'm not sure what it means for machines and people to learn in the same environment or how one informs the other. And this business about as we build collective intelligence and another question there is, um, are whatever competencies involved in a person, collective intelligence, are they the same as how we measure regular intelligence or, or are they new components, not heretofore not really seen as elements of intelligence. Anyway, um, this whole business about how those two things work together is a big, big question. And, and one we're, we're really beginning to think about specifically in my life in a healthcare project in China in terms of building an AI-engaged healthcare-related robot. And, um, and the experience so far has been real enriching um, but, but now that we're running into, and I don't know how relevant this is, when you think about it, at some point as, as a robot, as AI interacts with humans, um, it seeks to influence or motivate humans. And that attempt has to be based on something, has to be based on, in the software, a fundamental look at how humans are motivated, how humans are engaged. And yet, when we look at that, both in the UK and the US, when we look at that literature, in most cases, in many cases, it's 50 and 60 years old. Mm. What we're not seeing is the coming of neuroscience and what neuroscience is teaching us and how we motivate humans and how that should be considered as we write AI code and AI interventions. As things and people interact, why shouldn't things know more about the brain and use that as part of their tools and in interacting with humans. Yeah. So that's a big, long-winded answer, but it's, uh, it's really complex. I, I, I appreciate that. Thanks, thanks for your uh, depth of, of, of uh, input on that. Well, the, the, the interesting thing for me also is that this impact, we, we said earlier that for people to be able to adapt quickly, they've got to learn quickly. Uh, and, and Literally, I, I just come back from the ADV conference in, in Washington, and, and, and I would have thought a really high percentage of what was being discussed was being discussed 20 years ago. My question here is, are we giving people enough support in helping them to learn quickly? My gut is that we don't. And, and my gut is, and this may be something that you and I share, is informed by a process at ATD. 
in which, as you know, um, companies from all over the world apply to be seen as a best company in learning. Mm-hmm. And they complete a 20-page typewritten response to a questionnaire that we vet and make decisions on. And I've been a judge, as you have sometimes, and my sense from reading the interactions between, you know, the global learning organization, not-for-profit, and leading organizations is that that, that that ability to be agile, to learn quickly, to learn well, to shift directions, um, to give up a position that doesn't seem to be working, do those kinds of things, isn't the emphasis in learning structure. Instead, it's getting any, everybody trained in a single technology the same way. And that we're not all trained in that. It may be wrong. It, it, may be, it, it may no longer be relevant now that we've got it up, but whatever the new technology is that we're supposed to memorize or whatever, I've, we've got it memorized by such and such a date, we get an A. So, so I guess two things. I'm not seeing in the ATD criteria, which probably blasphemy, questions really focused on, on that, on the ability of, of not just, when I think about learning strategy, we think about everybody getting the same thing. How about everybody getting something a little different? How about everybody taking a different look at the problem and trusting that they'll come together and have more problem-solving power? How about, you know, we've got to let some people learn some different things. Um, We've got to let some people think and act outside the box. And that seems dangerous sometimes to large organizations, but shouldn't we do it? Well, it's it's a little bit like how we started the call and we said that the executive of tomorrow, in fact, the executive of today has to learn to let go and, and learn to make decisions collectively. Um, in a way, here we're saying, well, actually, corporate, whether that be not-for-profit or, or commercial, learning organizations have to let go. You know, it, it, we're at the wrong end of the telescope here. The, the, the learners kind of know what they need and they need to be able to get at it quickly and sometimes the need is big and they may need to go and join other people to 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 learn that but other times they just need to learn and how are we how are we enabling that to happen i don't think we need you know frameworks of, of specifics from the training in the perspective we probably need to look at it from the other end of the telescope and say well how do how do we let people survive and flourish when when they have to adapt. I so agree with that. And we we're talking about change. That's a fundamental change because every management model I can think of really talks about control kind of at the center of it. And so this whole business of uh, I'm I'm what I'm gonna give up control and and without losing something. Um, I'm, in fact, it's worse than that. I'm going to give up power because in the end of it, right, I'm going to give up my job will be directing people as much as facilitating people and, and turning them loose, right, on the problem rather than so, – so if we stop for a minute and think about action learning, everybody sort of gets that, that, that a high-performance team um, that has the resources and the knowledge it needs to can solve a specific problem – but what we're talking about is like action learning cubed, right? It's like we're a workforce 
is enabled with the creative, active problem-solving skills so that they can come together and solve a problem of high import here, break up, come together in another constellation, and inform it up where every person's best is applied to every problem. And to your point, every person is a part of the solution and a full and engaged member of the organization. Um, That business to break apart and reform quickly is an important skill. Yeah, we're we're asking people to really to, uh, in a way, to stop stop judging and to start enabling. You know, it's a a kind of... There sort of almost seems to be a given right that you get to a certain level and you're, you're now allowed to judge people. Actually, it's time to move that on a bit. That's, that's so true. You know, give up judging their performance. And to your point, that means it will assess performance entirely different, doesn't it? Yes, indeed. That yes. means it will define leadership different. Think about the, the regulators in any industry that's regulated. One of the things that um, I come across, and I don't know if you do, when, when working with organizations is they're afraid to, to switch that learning dilemma uh, because the view is that they have to demonstrate people have been trained in order to comply. Uh, and my own thinking on this going forward, and I'd like your view on it, is that if the regulators focused on the way people perform, it actually doesn't matter whether they've been trained, if they're doing it right. And if they're doing it wrong, why? Uh, because just because they've tra- been trained doesn't mean they're going to do it right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's slowing them down in two key ways. One of them is it's slowing them down in terms of their ability to apply real problem-solving power to real business problems quickly, right? To come together and, and do it and without, without being just to slow down. The other thing, and you alluded to it earlier, is it's slowing down the heart of the organization. It's slowing down, you know, it's, you know, the part of it that wants to, that wants to super engage and change the world and be more and do better. It's like it's pushing that back behind, you know, a, a wall of rules. Now, it's easy for me to do it, say, and maybe hard to implement, but I have to believe that this global workforce, what the Gallup find of, uh, of, a, of a sample of 142 million and over 100 com- companies that is up in like, what, 12% are fully engaged in their job? That the real answer to global productivity, the real answer to engagement and inspiration is about regulating our people just enough and letting them loose just enough. Just enough. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, ju- and, and, and just to come back to where we started, just enough uh, is really what lies behind allowing people to be in flow, which in turn enables organizations to be in flow. And the more in flow those organizations are, the more able they are to respond to the, to the outer world and to, and, and to create and achieve their intent and achieve their purpose. Um, so Walter thank you very very much indeed Um, that's so much within what you've said Um, it's going to take people several listens to pick up on all of the points 
within within your uh, within your contribution. So thank you very much indeed. You're you're very welcome. As a side, I would say that several years ago, I liked your title to bring it, not to put too fine a point on it, of in flow, I kind of got it. Um, I really think that the future has made your title and that mindset more appropriate now, even than it was then. Flow and the flexibility it is and the control it is, you know, within, within bounds. It just feels right. Yeah. Thank you, Walter. That's lovely. You're very welcome. welcome.